All right. So we started this sermon series, and we started talking about Esther, you'll remember, because it offers as a very interesting snapshot of God's people in a country and in a culture that is not familiar to them. It's completely foreign. They are in exile. And therefore, it offers this remarkably timely and timeless abundance of resources for hope and wisdom for what our sermon series kind of tagline is, is, is all about, which is a faithful presence in a world gone mad. Now, we may not experience that exile that God's people do in Esther geographically, but I think if we're honest, increasingly it feels that way to us culturally, right? Even just the rate and speed of change that we have experienced over the last few years alone, never mind since around 2014, 2015, like it is just, it is at a breaknet speed. Now, in answer to, in answer to this, some Christians are increasingly embracing and sympathetic to something that I mentioned last week that we're going to talk about today, which is Christian nationalism. Um, this, I want to just like, before we jump into what that is and why we're like, go deep into this, I want to just explain why we're doing this. Because we don't normally kind of like take like what's very trendy or being talked about as part of our conversation or, or, or a sermon. But there are three reasons why we're discussing this this morning. One, it may not be explicitly in the text, like even if you translate the Hebrew, like there's no Christian nationalism as words are not in the text, no. However, it is an obvious implication as a question, and it is, it is a natural place to engage with it, especially because this might, on, first, on the surface, seem to support it. Secondly, it is in the news a lot. I know a lot of your friends and family are talking about the term and like what it means, and there's a diversity of different ways that that could mean something, or like what that means, or how far it goes, etc. And and a few of you have asked very asked me, is that a, a an implication of Esther? Like, is that a good argument? Like, what do I? How do I respond to this? Well, and to answer that, thirdly, part of my job as a pastor is to help us not just understand the gospel and God's word in that, but also to exercise theological discernment, to understand the times as how Scripture describes it, to exercise wisdom uh, in, 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 what we're, in the times that we are living in. And this is something that is really worth our time. So um, I want to give one caveat at the end of that too, that um, I know the election, midterm elections are this week, and I do not want you to hear, none of this is like an implied, well, this is who or you should or shouldn't vote for. That has nothing to do with this, okay, as we will see here shortly. So let's talk about this. Let's, let's, let's define what Christian nationalism is, and we're going to get into the text directly. But first, I want to just kind of define the term that we're using here. And, and I want to do so in a, such a way that is actually, uh, well, let me put it this way. You guys are familiar with what a straw man is, right? It's, it's a fallacy. It's, it's, it's when you construct an argument that you disagree with specifically in order to tear it down, right? And so it makes it easy to knock it down and win the argument. But if God's word is what it is, then we, we actually have an obligation not to straw man an argument that we disagree with, but to steel man it, which means that we try to take its best version and then take a look at scripture and how it, how it might critique it. And if and if Scripture is true, then we should, we, should, we should be able to still do so. So, I want to steel man Christian nationalism. It says this, right? 
essentially, and there are many aspects I'm going to leave out in this because there's a frustrating amount of diversity in this, but here's what I think is the most common denominator. Christian nationalism says the problem is this, that Christians in the church, we have allowed ourselves to be marginalized and persecuted because we naively assume that the rest of society who is not Christian are going to act in good faith, and they haven't. Um, it would say that society is increasingly off the rails the further we get away from our Christian foundation and from a Christian culture. Now, let me pause there and talk about that as the problem. In that sense, there's a lot we can actually affirm, okay? Well, there's a lot that's accurate about that. For example, John Adams um, said while writing the Constitution, he says, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. James Madison, who wrote the Federalist Papers, he would agree. He says almost the exact same thing in a slightly different way, and this was fairly universally known. But yet, that's not how the Constitution was written in the sense of like requiring it. And the reason for that is because they understood that what was most important here, if we were going to preserve freedom and liberty, is going to be because we actually allow the conscience to determine belief, not the state. Now, that said, the further we get around, the more we are in a post-Christian, pluralistic society, the more virtue, the pursuit of virtue gets replaced by a pursuit of power, right? We see that on the left and the right. That's not just as it regards Christian nationalism. And that has had disastrous, polarizing consequences. In an everyday sense, though, like let's get this out of the clouds, right? There is zero social benefit for you to go to church now. Let me put it that way. There's zero social benefit for you to identify as a Christian. Right? If anything, there's often it comes at a cost. You at the like let's like, make this really benign but practical. You have to tell your kids, no, we can't, you can't go to the soccer game and play in the, this soccer game because it conflicts with worship. Because I know all of you are have disappointed your kids by doing, doing that. Sorry, that was dry and a little bit passive aggressive. My point is that we don't live, we actually do not live in a society that is organized around the assumption of Sunday worship. That is absolutely the case. And if anything, like Esther and Mordecai, it feels increasingly unsafe to identify with or live as God's people. Okay? And that we can affirm. In other words, the problem that Christian nationalism is identifying is we are increasingly exiles. And many are, have a, feel, are experiencing a loss of cultural or social political power that is actually understandable that we would have anxiety and fear around. Like, that's not, that's not crazy, okay? Who doesn't want safety and flourishing for themselves and for their children? Is this, of course, this makes sense, okay? Here's where the problem comes in, is the solution. Christian nationalism would say, that's it. No more kumbaya around the fire. No more, uh, and, and quoting Isaiah often happens, saying peace when there is no peace. We're going to fight fire with fire. And we're going to make Christianity an, an explicit and inextricable part of our national identity through laws that protect and, more concerningly, coerce a Christian way of life, whether a citizen is a Christian or not. I was actually reading this morning that one of the books on this topic uh, has advocated, for example, that that includes um, 
repealing the 19th Amendment and women being allowed to vote, uh, as well as uh, if anyone is teaching heresy or proselytizing a religion outside of Christianity, then they, uh, capital punishment is actually an option. Okay, so you see how much I'm steelmaning right now. Um, on the surface, now we just read, like, let me remind ourselves, like, to be fair, we just read Esther chapter 9, where once Esther and Mordecai got the political reins to the Persian Empire, it resulted with over 75,000 people dead. Okay, so let's ask that question, because it may seem to line up with Christian nationalism, especially the piece about safety, but it's actually far from it, if we can kind of get past our very modern perspective that we bring as a lens to this text. So, they're experiencing far more than exile. We would say that Israel's response to extermination, not just exile, is restraint. And I know that doesn't look like in the text, but we're going to walk through it. Because there's a huge gap, specifically between what was authorized by Mordecai and Esther and what is actually described as happening. So let's, let's refresh ourselves with what was authorized. Because in, in chapter 8, we talked about this last week, that uh, Mordecai and Esther put out an edict saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, and it kind of goes on to give specifics around the date. Now, this actually is, the, what was authorized, is eye for an eye. It is vengeance in a sense, but it is worded in a copy-paste manner from the original edict that Haman put out to exterminate the Jews in the first place. So what's being communicated here is because they, they cannot repeal it, because then the king would have to admit that he's not divine, the, the, the emperor, right? Um, because of that, they, they word it exactly the same. And they authorize the same thing with exactly one exception. This is only in self-defense. It's only in self-defense. It is a mirror image that is in order, like that, that, is, that is explicitly done this in order to cancel out and communicate or imply that it's being canceled out because they can't actually cancel it out. And it is explicitly in self-defense. Now, we see this actually reinforced with what actually happened. It says... In verse 9 and uh, verse 12, that only men are killed. It says in Susa, which as the capital of the Persian Empire is, is symbolic. It, in, in a sense, it is, it is representative particularly of what happens generally. And so it says on day one, there's five, there are 500 men killed. And on day two, there are 300 men killed. And then it says across the rest of the empire, 75,000 enemies generally. Okay. I'll be honest, like, part of me wants to pad the discomfort of this, and um, of all the different sources and commentaries and people who are a lot smarter than me that I refer, like, referred to and tried to understand what's being said here, it was almost split evenly between whether or not the 75,000 enemies were just men or also women and children. The odds... Um, based on that, I think are very much in the favor of it being just men, but we can't actually say that with certainty, okay? So once again, like we talked about last week, there's a lot of moral ambiguity in Esther. <laughs> However, there's a much bigger gap between what was authorized and what actually happened is fascinating. 
did you catch it? And I, I pointed it out, but it, did you catch that it was three times it says that they didn't lay their hands on the plunder? Why not? Right? I mean, Haman was going to pay off, bribe, basically bribe the king with the Jews' p- plunder, their wealth that they took when they slaughtered them. He was just like, we're going to fill your coffers with 10,000 more gold. Why would the Jews not at least take that for themselves? These are breadcrumbs. That's why. These are breadcrumbs that to someone who understood, who, who's like an Old Testament Jew would have understood that what is being signaled here is that this is an actual holy war. It's a holy war. Now, you're like, wait, I thought you said you didn't want to pat it. You're kind of overcompensating a little bit, Brad. Uh, You used the word holy war. Are you aware that you used the word holy war? Yes, in fact, it's actually a main point on the screen behind me too. I say this because our understanding of what a holy war is actually dramatically different from what happens in the Old Testament. And also, it does not, it only happens like a couple times in the Old Testament. Let me let me start by illustrating how, how our modern sense of this is distorting. And in a very relevant way, actually, on February 25th, 1994, some of you may remember this, I did not remember this, on Purim, on the holiday that Esther is actually uh, is written to explain the existence of, that year it happened to be that Purim and Ramadan coincided and overlapped on that day. And on that day in Israel, uh, in Jerusalem, a, or sorry, in, in uh, I think it's Horeb, um, a Jewish nationalist by the name of Baruch Goldstein walked into a room full of hundreds of Muslim men, women, and children who were praying during, at the start of Ramadan, um, threw a grenade in the middle of the floor, and an open fired. 29 people were killed and 125 injured. And we know that this guy, this terrorist, saw himself as Mordecai and saw Yasser Arafat, who was the leader of the Palestinian uh, people at the time, as Haman. And Esther, chapter 9, was used as justification for Jewish nationalism. Okay? It was a holy war. That's not, that is a violent malpractice and distortion of this text. Here's why. In, in the Old Testament, in the holy war, there's three dynamics. Number one, it is never for self-interest. It is never for self-interest that this happens. All of the, all of the wealth, all of the plunder that ever was, is ever taken in a holy war is either burned and destroyed. The, the word is actually harem. It means devoted exclusively to God. So it is burned up. If it is livestock, they're slaughtered. If it's gold, it's put in the temple in a closet and left there. No, no Israelite ever is supposed to profit from a holy war. Why? Because benefiting, profiting from this, blurs the line of who is authorizing that being acted on. Is it on behalf of God or is God's people the one that who determined that? Okay. Number two, it is very rare. It only happens a few times in all the Old Testament at historically, utterly unique moments where God's people face eradication, but not... Not, but it's, it's not a justification because of their safety is at risk. It's actually because God's promises 
and his salvation is at risk. You see, because God's people are central to his entire plan of redemption. He's saying this small nation, this weak nation with no chariots of its own, with no horse, no, no, no land, but they're enslaved in Egypt, I will use them to redeem all of creation. That was what was at stake. So even if self-preservation is motivating God's people, it's redemption that's motivating God. Lastly, it is always God-initiated, never man, and it is always an a-, a just act of judgment. We do not ever determine when a holy war gets to happen, period. We don't read the tea leaves and say, I think this is one of those situations that's really similar to Esther. We don't get that freedom. That's not okay. We know that, like, and it's just because, well, I, I love this piece, actually, in, in when Abraham who God says, it's your descendants, I will do all of this through. He's touring the promised land in Israel. And while there, God tells him, hey, this is actually going to be for your descendants. You're never going to get to see this as your promised land. You're going to have to trust me on this. And why? Because the residents here, it says their wickedness is not yet complete. God is saying, taking their land from them is not yet just because they don't, it's not deserved yet. It's only after they start embracing infant sacrifice and practices like that. And also, by the way, we've talked about this this summer when we were in the book of Psalms and about how God's people were mimicking those practices in their worship. And God said, guess what? I'm consistent, uh, and now you're going into exile, and I'm going to allow that same thing to happen. You, You don't get to stay in this promised land. So God is just, and he is consistent. But there's another thing here and that we've actually been reading through this whole time that's been hiding in plain sight that gives this a, a, an incredible amount of depth of what's going on here. There's a connection to a, a specific holy war, a failed one in the Old Testament that has been referenced as more pre- breadcrumbs every time it says, and it's five times in Esther, refers to Haman as Haman the Agagite. Haman the Agagite. Haman the descendant of Agag. King Agag was the king of a tribe called the Amalekites. And I'll ask you to, we'll have 1 Samuel 15 on here. I know we're going like, like we're going, this is a deep cut, okay? Um, And I'm doing this because part of what I just said about like, we don't get to decide this. We get to lean into scripture to understand how God works. That is our responsibility when we are experiencing exile. And so we're we're just doing this together today. Okay. So 1 Samuel 15, just the first few verses, it says, And Samuel, who's God's prophet, speaking through him, said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the, uh, on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Okay, pause. What he's, what's being described here is when Israel was wandering in the, in the wilderness, the Amalek and his tribe started attacking them, um, taking advantage of them and their weakness and their wandering. They had no way to protect themselves. And it's the first people that tried to attack God's people after he frees them from Egyptian slavery. He says, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction, harem, holy war, all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. I'm just like bringing up all of the things that we might have problems with this morning. (laughs) 
In response to the, uh, the Amalekites, God says he vows not to forget their aggression, and he vows to blot them out. And so 1 Samuel 15, with King Saul, the first king of Israel, he's saying, okay, now is that moment when I will blot them out as an act of judgment, okay? But guess what? <laughs> king Saul, he screws up. In verse 9, it says, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. In fact, they, they, so they, they saw an opportunity here to profit from, to get ahead, to take advantage of this holy war, to benefit from it, and so they keep it. Why does he do that? Why does Saul do that? A few verses later, Samuel asks him why you did this, because he confronts him. And he says, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice instead of God's. I feared the people and obeyed their voice instead of God's. Self-interest, self-preservation, self-comfort, self-serving, self-whatever adjective you want to put on there, that is justified by a fear of man more than a faith in God. More than God's providence, which is why last week about providence was part one of this. So all this to say, like, like, okay, we did our deep cut, we're coming back out, now let's ask, so what? Esther does not only not justify Christian nationalism, it is wholly and utterly incompatible with it, and this is the most, like, let's just say, let, let's, be, let's be real. This is probably the most likely to justify Christian nationalism text in Scripture. And it still doesn't. Why? Because, yes, the second edict authorized fighting fire with fire, no more kumbaya. But they didn't do that. They actually didn't. They restrained themselves. In 1 Samuel 15, it says, the way it described it, it says they, they pounced on the plunder and spared the king. And in Esther, it says they pounced on Haman and spared the plunder. It not only doesn't support it, 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 it argues against it because this is actually a redemptive reversal. It is a fulfillment of Saul's failure. God is actually bringing it to completion, and in so doing, they're sparing the plunder, but not sparing the Agagite. This was... This is part of the history of redemption. This is not just, you know what? Culture's really hard right now, guys. Yes, they are urgently motivated by self-preservation, but ultimately by God's judgment. And it's God's judgment, not man's, that protects them and provides their safety. Yes, Esther and Mordecai, the Jews, they feared their enemies. They felt fear, but they demonstrated a greater faith in God because they refused to get ahead, pad their victory, to take advantage through the plunder. Because if God's providence is evident in enough in the Persian Empire that they don't need to do that because they trust God to provide for them, and if not only that, but for God to rescue his people from a pagan Persian empire, then there is nothing, not secular culture, not political polarization, neither principalities nor politicians that can ultimately threat Christians. Period. And nothing, absolutely nothing, that requires a motivation of fear to drive it is ever biblical. No qualification, no disclaimer there. Yes, 
Esther and Mordecai stewarded and used their political power to rescue God's people, but they did not use it to coercively do, so, do anything outside of the very narrow goal of self-defense. Like We're going to talk about this more next week when we talk about the rest of chapter 9 and chapter 10, but after this, Esther does not commemorate and send out letters to the entire Persian empire to make Purim a Persian holiday. It's a Jewish holiday. The letters are sent to the Jews across the Persian empire. It is not sent to everybody. That's very intentional. There is no coercion. There is no enforcement of, 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 of having non-Jews act Jewish. And if that was not enough, more than anything else, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, should be when, when, when Israel is, is, a, is entering into the promised land, that sh- alone should be enough to disabuse us of this notion that we Christians, if there are just enough of us in power, then all of this is going to improve and everything's going to get better, right? Because in Deuteronomy, and yes, I'm stalling because I'm trying to find it. God says, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, oh, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. He says, no, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. It's not because you're righteous. It's because I love you. My point in this is is that Israel's behavior and God's judgment in response to it and God's judgment of the nations both consistently help us understand and see that God's people are just as capable as being idiots, morons, and actually wicked and evil and unrighteous as any of our non-believing neighbors are. If that were not the case, and yes, I have saved it until this point, if that were the case, and if we were, if we were trying to get back as a country to a time when Christians were more in charge and this was a Christian nation and everybody was flourishing, how do you explain slavery? How do you explain Jim Crow? How do you explain the fact that we had to fight a civil war over this? They were all Christians. We are not. We cannot be entitled. Because all is grace. And forgetting otherwise, the best illustration, and yes, this is intended to, to break some of the tension and take a deep breath, I'm going to use another Arrested Development illustration. Okay? Because there's a point when Tobias is having difficulty in his marriage with Lindsay, and they're trying to figure out, like, what can we do to, to fix our marriage, to, to come back together? And Tobias says, you know, Lindsay, as a therapist, I have advised a number of couples to explore an open relationship where the couple remains emotionally committed, <clears throat> Christian, but free to explore extramarital encounters, national identity. Well, did it work out for those people, Lindsay S.? Tobias responds, no, it never does. And I'm, this is my insertion, especially Israel, right? I mean, these people somehow delude themselves into thinking it might, but, but it might work for us. <laughs> my point in that. Yes, it's to break the tension, but also Christian nationalism fails because it's actually been tried. It doesn't work, it doesn't flourish, and it's not biblical. It's actually fear. Okay, this is the last thing I say before we jump into the Q&A. I've been really focused on trying to talk about this from the Old Testament, especially and specifically, because 
So much of the argument for Christian nationalism comes from the Old Testament, and I want you to see how bad that exegesis is, how bad that interpretation of the Old Testament is, okay? But even if, that, if, even if there was a case for, for that from the Old Testament, there is not in the New Testament because Jesus changes everything for exiles, okay? I was really, I was really tempted to, to name this main point, uh, why Christian, Christian nationalism is an oxymoron. Um, I just have two points here. One, the cross... Jesus on the cross actually solves the problem of exile. And we've been talking about how valid that problem is. The cross solves the problem of exile. God's judgment that we deserve fell on Jesus, and that means that we are not actually, objectively, or ever need fear being exiled from God. We were, we were his enemies, and now we remain his family. That ultimate reality can, has to, must, and is the determining factor for any political consideration we may make, period. That means we, may not, we never need to actually fear being exiled from God. So no matter how much we may feel socially, politically, or culturally homeless, you guys, we're always and forever home. The exile, the feeling of exile, is actually a lie. It is less true. It is not true in comparison to the home we have in Christ. And we need not ever fear the judgment of man because we have been justified by Christ. Like, what, what can anybody say? Why, why is that a threat? Christian nationalism is actually a pretty epic self-own. It says, like, we can, because it, it, it actually confesses that we can be threatened by that. Now, for the Christian, that means the experience of exile, whether that's pain, hardship, persecution, suffering, it doesn't go away, right? It doesn't like wave a magic wand and make everything better, but it does mean that it is anything but meaningless or a sign of failure. The cross transforms the meaning of suffering and pain as a whole, and it repurposes it and redeems it. James 1, 2 through 4 says, count it all joy. Okay, like, I know that's weird for me too, okay? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You guys, it increasingly feeling like an exile is actually a pretty amazing kingdom, redemptive opportunity, and for maturity for us personally. Second point here. The cross solves the problem of exile, but the church provides safety in exile. It provides a home. In, in the Old Testament, God's people, Israel, were a theocratic nation state. In the New Testament, in the era in which we live, God's people, the church, are a global spiritual kingdom. Christian nationalism functionally trades the Holy Spirit distinctive of the church for a political safety blanket that we don't actually need because we have the church. It's literally redundant. When I, when I quoted John Adams earlier, and, where he says, our Constitution is made for a 
only for a moral and religious people, is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. I, 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 st- I still agree with this. That's right. You know what? That's not an argument for top-down Christian nationalism. That's an argument for evangelism and discipleship and church planting and denominational re- renewal and providing accountability so that spiritual abuse doesn't happen in our churches anymore. It means it's, that's a call for repentance. Because guess what? We're talking about Christian nationalism and not whatever the you know, secular alternative is because we police our own house first and we deal with our sin first because how, what authority do we have to talk to our neighbors about sin or God's judgment unless we have actually taken it seriously enough to repent? Let me put it this way as an implication of that. Your citizenship, your nation-state membership is a terrible substitute for and pales in comparison to your church membership. You should take church membership far more seriously than you do the freedom and the right to vote. Right? Christian nationalism, I'm just going to, I've got two final statements and we're really going to jump into the, how many? Cool. More than I can count. Great. Christian nationalism is functionally a 2,000-year step backwards, and all because fear we fear the power of secular man and political power more than we trust the providence of Esther's God. And as a final note, like, by the way, none of this, because there's, I, I've resisted saying what I often say, do not hear what I'm not saying. Um, there's a lot of opportunities this, this sermon. It doesn't mean that geopolitical wars won't happen or don't happen or that Christians can't or shouldn't participate in the armed services. It's an issue according to conscience. Nothing in Scripture implies that nation states actually are not used by God also to restrain evil or act in their own interest. But this is the point, this is key. They cannot ever equate their interest with God's interests. And that's what Christian nationalism does. So... All right. Regarding God-ordained holy wars, what is the steel man that confirms Esther and Mordecai's actions are ordained by God and not their own acts or being attuned to the spirit as Christian nationalists could claim? Okay, so to answer that question, that's really where the breadcrumbs of uh, Haman the Agagite and that reference is coming from because you see that reversal and fulfillment as well as the not taking the plunder. That is so key because at every point, the author of Esther is making great pain to communicate that what was authorized is not all, like what happened is not everything that was authorized. What, was, what happened was functionally a holy war that is an execution of God's judgment. And what's incredible is that that didn't, that wasn't in the edict. People across the Persian Empire didn't lay their hands on the plunder, and it wasn't because the edict actually said the opposite. So we, what the author is implying here is that it was a work of God's Spirit that the Jews across the entire empire didn't do what was authorized. That actually is a miracle. <laughs> that is, how many of you would like pass up the tax refund I was talking about last week, right? Like, that doesn't happen. It's not a thing. Okay. Okay, last week someone asked about how Psalm 23 might reframe our idea of justice. How does Psalm 23 relate to the story of Esther and how might we adjust our idea of justice because of it? Oh, man. Okay, so that's good. It's a very good question. 
I'm going to punt on this and respond to whoever this is in the week because my memory is fuzzy of Psalm 23 and because I want to do this, well, justice, um, because it's a very good question. Um, okay, next question. How the heck, appreciate that, how the heck do you even discuss this with a neighbor or family member who is a Christian nationalist? You can't get through with logic. Very good question. Here's what I would say. Don't. Right? My intent primarily this morning is so that you don't feel like, let me put it this way, it is very understandable to hear some of these arguments and be like, oh God, what if they're right? You know, especially because some of them are increasingly becoming really academic oriented and not just kind of populist outrage stoking. And they're not right. And I want you to know that you have many amazing resources backing that up. Secondarily, you are absolutely right that logic and reason is not the thing that, like, they didn't arrive at that conclusion for that reason. For the most part, it is because of a, a pessimism of what is possible outside of our age, our actual direct effort and control. Like, we think that if we don't have control, we're not in charge or whatever, that God can't or do, do something. Like, but the entire point of Esther, as we've been talking about, is that God uses Haman and King Xerxes to accomplish his plan without their even intending to. They're intending the opposite. And that means we actually don't need to worry about it. All I have to say, it's not logic, you're right, it's fear. And let me tell you, how many people are feeling anxiety and fear because the rate of cultural change is actually happening faster than our ability to emotionally process it now. You're not imagining that, especially if you're on social media. But you don't even, even apart from that, okay? I would say don't, right? And if your neighbor asks about this stuff, you can be like, ah, let me, let's, let's open it up and let's talk about it. And it's okay if I invite my pastor because he actually doesn't know that much either, but he did read some smart people once, right? So that is an open invitation. Okay, if God is the only one to declare holy war, how, where, in the, next, in the text does he explicitly instruct the Jews to fight this holy war? I saw in the Samuel text how he specifically speaks to them, but I don't see it in Esther. Yes, this is exactly, this is absolutely right. This is a very good point. So this is just consistent with the entire rest of the story of Esther where God is not mentioned. The point of that being that God's providence is not limited to his miraculous supernatural intervention, that it also happens through ordinary, boring, very you know, worldly politics. And yet, God is still very clearly in the midst of all of this. It doesn't require a supernatural act for him to even do this. And how he did that? Across the entire Persian Empire? in a way that didn't explicitly speak through a prophet like Samuel? I have no idea, but I'm really looking forward to asking him someday. Okay, last week. Haman was a descendant of Agag, correct? Also, what about 2 Chronicles 7.14? Oh, come on. It was you, wasn't it? Okay, it was my wife. <clears throat> okay, she warned me if I didn't bring this up that she would ask about it, so Fair. She is also consistent. Um, <laughs> yes, Agag is Haman is a descendant. It is implied in Esther that Haman is a descendant of Agag. Okay, we don't have his family genealogy or records to, to be able to back that up, but that's what Esther is implying. 
Second uh, Chronicles 7.14, see, I'm still prepared, I have it here, um, says, if my people who are called by my name uh, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. The reason that she's asking this is because this verse has been frequently bastardized by people who want to equate God's people with American people. And as if, uh, so if Americans repent and if enough Christians or enough people become Christians, then God will heal the land and provide for it. And therefore, if, if things are going poorly in the United States, then that is because people are rejecting God and that's why he sends hurricanes and blah, blah, blah. It's just like all kinds of really stupid things have been justified with this verse. And the answer is, it's not about Americans, it's about Christians. If Christians repent, the land is no longer the land. The land is the church. We have the Holy Spirit instead of a geographic boundary. Okay? What's being promised here is God's restoration and redemption that is fulfilled in Christ because God's people are unrighteous. We are not righteous enough to, to actually do Second Chronicles 7.14. The fact that we think we are is part of the problem. We're not. We're dependent on God. And even if all of that were not true, Israel's a nation, it was a theocratic nation state, and the church is not. So it doesn't apply anyway, just by context. So, great, now I have to figure out how to bridge from that into communion. <laughs> no, really. Um, okay, here's my best bet. Ah, okay. When Jesus chose his 12 disciples, that was not an arbitrary number. That was to not just symbolically represent, but to actually accomplish the transition I just got done describing. Instead of 12 tribes, we have 12 morons, I mean, sorry, disciples, right? Instead of 12 holy uh, families that make up one people, we have uh, the nations represented, and you go from you go from Israel being in perpetual exile to God bringing all of his people back together at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and you now have a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Instead of being scattered by all of their differences, their unity in the Spirit regathers them and brings them back together. What's being done there is an undoing of the effects of the fall on humanity in a very small way in that the church becomes refuge. The church becomes the first resurrection post Jesus' resurrection. So you participate in that in and through every time as a Christian in the church. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, by one of the 12, by one of the 12 inaugurating the apostles, uh, disciples, right? He was there with an unrighteous one who was going to betray him, and he knew it. And he says, this is my body. It is broken for you. He says, likewise, my, this cup of wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. He knows there are unrighteous among him. There still are. That's why it's, it's grace. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim God's grace. You proclaim my death until I return. And you participate in the promise that God will restore all things fully and completely for those 10,000 years. Okay? 
I was told this morning that we accidentally put the juice in the wine cups and the wine in the juice cups. And so that is an awkward logistical note that is still important for your participation in communion this morning. We celebrate communion as a fam- in family style. So as soon as there are eight or ten of you coming up here, we will distribute the elements and we will take it together because we are a family-made family, not because of blood, but because of spirit. And it's Jesus' blood that brings us together. So let's pray. Jesus, oh, thank you um, for delivering me from this sermon uh, and as well as delivering for your people from any need to fear the, the nations raging in vain. Because we, the nations plot, they rage, and it is in vain because <laughs> oh, it's kind of cute, God, that we think that we know your will and your mind beyond what you have given us and that we in some way can usher your kingdom faster than you will do so. Lord, use us if it is your will, and if it is not, Lord, thank you that we're loved, because that's really what matters most. Lord, thank you. Transform us from the inside out through your love. We pray in your name. Amen.